Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be talking about the language of innovation. What companies stand to gain by creating a common language for innovation? The top sources of waste created by uncertainty around innovation endeavors, and the difference between ideas, invention, and innovation. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Doug Williams, Chief Research Officer and Principal Analyst at Innovation Excellence. Innovation Excellence is the world's leading online gathering for innovation professionals. With more than 1.3 million page views per month and close to 25,000 members in their LinkedIn group. In his role at Innovation Excellence, Doug writes research reports like the one we'll be discussing today, the role of communication in successful innovation. He also writes for Innovation Excellence on topics like new product development and innovation in the healthcare space, as well as for outside publications like the GE Ideas Lab website. Before joining Innovation Excellence, Doug was an analyst at Forrester who covered open innovation, co-creation, and new product development. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Thank you, Will, and thank you very much for inviting me today. Of course. So let's start off today by setting the baseline for why clear communication is so imperative to innovating successfully. It sounds like one of the biggest challenges people in in the innovation space have is communicating across geographical boundaries and time zones. So how does creating a common language of innovation help bridge some of those gaps? Yeah, it's a good question, Will. You know, certainly the common language of innovation addresses many problems, but in in today's working world, you know, the world itself has become a lot smaller, and so people can now work with colleagues or partners or vendors uh, from around the world with ease, but oftentimes communication with those people is still asynchronous, so there's a lot of reliance on written communication or versioning of project work, and that can sometimes, you know, uh, it doesn't allow people to interact sort of face-to-face or, or in, real, uh, in real time. So having a clear ability to communicate is, is really important because you don't get that extra opportunity to connect with the person or to make sure they're on the same page with you if you're just writing something in an email. If you use a word, you know, the word innovation or the word disruptive or incremental, you know, those words don't necessarily have a concrete meaning. They, they, there's some softness to them. And so one of the ideas around this common language of innovation is to create those definitions so that people um, can communicate more effectively and, and you know, avoid some of the problems that are associated with poor communication. Okay, great. So let me ask you about the research report that we'll be talking about over the course of the episode. As I mentioned in the intro, it's called The Role of Communication in Successful Innovation. Can you give listeners a little background on who completed the survey and what some of the key findings were? Sure. So at Innovation Excellence Research, we have our own in-house global research panel of innovation practitioners and thought leaders and consultants and professors and students, so a wide range of people, um, and that uh, they're opting in to participate in the research process with us, either through online surveys or sometimes through over-the-phone interviews as well. That group is constantly growing, and we're really proud of the fact that we have access to this really valuable group of people. Um, It's a great asset for us 
we see innovation as a business discipline at Innovation Excellence, and it's growing today, but it's still actually quite early. So it's very hard to identify the people in the world who are actively involved in innovation. Not all companies have uh, very clear titles or roles around innovation. So people often have to sort of self-select themselves as you know, raising their hand and saying, yes, I participate in the innovation process in my company in some way, shape, or form. So we know that it's a challenge for some of the other panel providers out there to find those people and be able to you know, do surveys with them or contact them for research purposes. So we, we're trying to use this asset um, when we create a report, and it helps us feel very comfortable with the data that we're, that we're gathering and reporting on. So as for that report, you know, we could spend a lot of time discussing it. Uh, it's 20 pages, 22 pages in total. It has 11 figures in there. But there's three key messages that really um, kind of come through, uh, and I'll try to keep it brief. But the first is that the data tells us that companies today, they lack a common language of innovation. And, you know, we sort of talked about why that's important, but it, it is the, the case where, you know, across several sort of typical you know, words that you might use in, in, in talking about innovation on a regular basis, very few companies reported that they have company-wide definitions for those terms. Point two is that uh, the lack of a common language actually does lead to communication challenges relating to innovation. So two out of three respondents uh, in our survey reported that, uh, that they had had such a communication challenge around innovation within the past year. And 61% of those people experience communication challenges at least once a month. So that's happening on a regular basis. And what we also found is that, there's, uh, that those communication challenges are occurring throughout the organization. It's most common when talking to executive team members and when talking to um, uh, colleagues in other departments. So that's where you can sort of see those, those definitions or the language not really extending across the entire organization, and that's where some of those barriers exist. So the third point that the report raises is that a consistent language can improve these communication challenges. Again, that 61% figure came out of those who experienced communication challenges indicated that communication would have been improved if a consistent language of innovation were in place. So they're recognizing the need for that common language. And it sounds so basic, but the fact is that it's, it's a pervasive problem and it's a barrier, and companies really need to find a way to get past that. Yeah, so you mentioned that there, you mentioned that there are six kind of terms that there's no real set definition for, and I won't give away too much of the report. We, of course, want to drive people to check it out and check out Innovation Excellence, but their idea innovation, invention, open innovation, co-creating, and crowdsourcing. And there are varying levels of agreement on what those are. But one thing that I found was interesting from the study was that 29% of companies don't have even have a standard definition of the word innovation. So obviously it's something that differs from company to company, but what is your standard definition of innovation? Yeah, you know, it's funny, if anyone who has spent any time in any of the sort of LinkedIn or online discussion groups about innovation, this topic of what is the definition of innovation is beaten to death. And it's, it's amazing to me that people consistently and constantly argue about it. 
my opinion is that my definition doesn't even matter. What matters is that the company defines its, its definition of innovation and evangelizes that across the organization so that everybody is on the same page with what this means, what we're trying to do when it comes to innovation. Now, because you asked, I will share my definition. <laughs> um, and that is, I, I keep it simple. I mean, I think, you know, there are many out there who um, who try to come up with sort of a guru-esque way of thinking about innovation with long and involved definitions. But to me, it's very simple. It's four words. Change that creates value. And that, that change could be anywhere in the organization, and that value could be, you know, anything that creates value, whether it's to the company, to an employee, to the customer. So if you you know, in my view, you keep it simple, it allows everybody to sort of get on board, and then you can take steps forward about how to actually make this innovation happen. Okay, sure. And and I imagine doesn't have to be monetary value necessarily? Not not necessarily at all. I mean, I think value to the consumer could, uh, you know, oftentimes stretches well beyond, uh, you know, sort of monetary uh, benefit to the company or even monetary benefit to the customer of a reduced price you know, added convenience or, uh, you know, things of that nature, I think, you know, put that, uh, can, can, can capture uh, value as well. Okay. Got it. So uh, another stat from the study that kind of jumped out at me, uh, was that only 20% of innovation practitioners who were surveyed said that their companies have a consistent framework for considering and categorizing their innovation initiatives. Another 25% said that no said that an informal classification system existed and 49% said that there was no classification system at all for innovation initiatives. So uh, I guess first of all why is that a problem and if you're in a, if you're in one of the 49% of the companies that has no classification system at all where might you start in setting something up? So it's a great question. I think that uh you know, the, the notion of a classification system is very closely linked to this idea of a common language. And, you know, you mentioned those six terms earlier uh, uh, that, you know, those, those six terms, I think three of them, the idea, invention, and innovation are sort of relatively well established. You know, open innovation, co-creation, crowdsourcing, those terms have been, you know, uh, emerging, uh, certainly some more than others, in the lexicon of innovation over several years. But that's where there's a lot of confusion. And so when we when we asked specifically about some of those definitions, we were trying to think about words that people either would certainly be using or likely are familiar with and starting to think about new things or new ways of, of of innovating um, using sort of new new processes or techniques such as crowdsourcing or co-creation. Mm -hmm. But there's a whole bunch of other words that we didn't ask about precisely because they have this very fuzzy nature to them and they can mean completely different things to different people. So those are often words that are associated with the, the frameworks or classification. What, what kind of an innovation is this? So I'm thinking about words like disruptive or radical or transformative. And, you know, one might argue that those all mean the same thing. And maybe that's true, but we don't know that. You know, you and I could have a conversation about disruptive innovation, and that could be very different from the actual sort of business school definition of that, as coined by uh, Clayton Christensen, where it has a very specific meaning. Uh, meaning. Um, you know, disruptive by itself 
you know, could be anything. But when you, t- when you link it to innovation, it does have a specific meaning. If people don't know what that is, then, you know, they'll either misuse the term or create some sort of, um, you know, communication barrier or gap between what they're saying to somebody who does understand the term for its sort of dictionary definition um, and their own uh, perception of that term. So the, the, you know, the classification system, I think, is often where those terms rely, and it helps people sort of think about what type of an innovation is this or what type of innovation initiatives are we trying to focus on. And the study, you, know, you, you mentioned that 49% of, of companies not really having any way of, of talking about this. You know, that, that tells me that they're kind of you know, innovating by the seat of their pants. Not that that's a bad thing. You know, that's pretty common, I think, obviously. And it's the way a lot of companies sort of have to roll with the, with the punches. But the companies that really can innovate well and can have a, a really true um, understanding of what they're trying to accomplish in, with their innovation programs do create those classification systems. And it's a, it's a tool that helps them sort of allocate resources and allocate people and money to those different types of programs but it also helps them communicate to management or other departments about what they're doing, knowing that not all of their work is done to affect incremental or sustaining innovation changes, which are tiny changes to existing products. And certainly they're not spending all of their time or money on moonshot type projects, as Google calls them, you know, of mm-hmm. uh, these, these uh, fantastic potential opportunities that may change the world but may fail completely. So having some structure around that is, is really important. Um, for those companies who are looking at how to do this, well, our, our survey revealed that most common classification systems is sort of have these three categories, right? So you have three buckets, one sort of those quick and easy innovation initiatives, a second category that may be a little bit more challenging, a little bit further down the line, whether technology needs to catch up a little bit or you just, you know, you need time and resources to kind of build that program up. And then third would be that uh, that more further out into the future, not necessarily moonshot, but things that could be more transformative in nature to either the industry or maybe create a new product category or a completely new product for the, uh, the company to, to move into. Okay, so I want to ask you about something you said earlier, Doug. You mentioned that you think we're at a point where innovation is a business discipline. So that would imply that it's uh, uh, just as important as sales or marketing uh, or finance or any other part of a, of a traditional organization. Is, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. You know, and you mentioned some, some business areas that are well-established, business disciplines, you know, marketing, market research, accounting, those things have structure. Companies recognize that they need to do them. And by and large, they're done in the same kinds of ways, right? There's, there's always changes in, you know, new technologies or new tools to enable marketing. But the general principles behind marketing have kind of been established and people understand what their goals are there. And we see innovation as a business discipline today as well. And it's something that companies are becoming more comfortable sort of recognizing and putting some structure around. You know, Innovation Excellence is actually a partner in bringing the world's first global innovation certification to market. Um, this is something that just launched um, within the past six months or so. Our partners are the Global Innovation Management Institute and the Center for Innovation, Excellence, and Leadership. 
So the Global Innovation Management Institute has created this content, and we're working to sort of uh, bring this to the marketplace and help people understand the value behind build, you know, sort of understanding and learning about innovation as a capability, sort of building that capability within people. That's what the certification program is there for. So it teaches people how to do this. And then it also, uh, there's four levels. So, you know, there's level one, which is sort of a learning process of, of the innovation um, uh, method. And then level two is actually an action project where you have to demonstrate how you've used the learnings from level one in your real life uh, environment, whether you know it's a work environment, maybe it's a student environment, um, it can be either. And then levels three and four are actually the same kind of approach, but for a manager. So it's innovation management, learning about that, and then demonstrating uh, that you've you know sort of learned and and done this in in uh, in your uh, in your profession. The real crux of this, though, is is believing that there is a way to um, create the structure around innovation as a process. I mean, I think some people think of innovation in sort of the Steve Jobs way that it just sort of magically happens and it's one person. And, you know, that is probably true, but in such a small number of cases. What we believe is that there are ways to allow individuals and groups and even, you know, larger employee groups overall to contribute toward the innovation process. And we've created, and, and we're, that's what the certification program does, it sort of demonstrates and shows how to go through the process of building on idea fragments and, and you know, identifying opportunities and analyzing competitive marketplaces and basically all of the things that you need to do to evolve that uh, you know, process of innovation into something that is repeatable and sustainable within the company. Uh, so that's what you know. That's what the certification program is trying to do, and I guess it's us putting our money where our mouth is. And we're not just trumpeting the fact that innovation is a business discipline. We're trying to show that that that's actually the case. Okay, great. And for folks out there that may be interested in in getting the certificate, they can can they find information on the Innovation Excellence website? They can. Um, there's uh, links there under certification on our homepage, innovationexcellence.com. You can also visit um, the website globalinnovationcertification.com, and you'll see everything there, too. Okay, great. So let me ask you a little bit about waste and the downsides to not clearly communicating a company's innovation mission. What were the most commonly cited forms of waste that could either be decreased or eliminated altogether with greater attention to creating a common language of innovation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, the data was really interesting here. The two top uh, uh, data points here um, basically went to the, uh, the waste associated with the employee and difficulty that they were having. So frustration, 68% of our respondents indicated that they felt frustrated with the process because of these communication challenges. And then 57% indicated that it was a waste of time um, or that you know, they were doing the same work twice uh, in some cases. So. That's really important. It sounds ridiculous. You know, it's like, oh, somebody was frustrated, big deal. But when it comes to innovation, it really has to be a great process, a feel-good process to get people engaged and interested in participating in this on a regular basis. You know, there may be a few people on an innovation team whose job it is to keep these things going, keep momentum going, but they have to encourage others to participate. 
And if those other employees have a hard time with the process, they're just going to turn their nose up at it and not come back. And that's a shame. That's that's can't happen for companies to really be able to move forward and tapping the resources internally for innovation. Just a couple of other uh, interesting data points uh, were delay. So uh, it's pretty obvious, I think, when there's communication gaps and it causes things to, to slow down, you know, that causes a delay in the innovation actually taking place or maybe the product getting out into the marketplace. And that, in turn, kind of hits another couple of data points, the waste of financial resources and loss of revenue. You know, those are bottom line issues that executives care about. So, you know, creating that common lingo can uh, reduce those, those barriers and really improve the innovation process in many ways. Okay, got it. So we, we touched on this a little bit previously, um, and, uh, and, but I want to ask, one of the things that you write about in the study is knowing the difference between ideas, invention, and innovation. So how do you separate those three things in your mind? Right. So, um, you know, this is really an exercise that companies need to undergo as they develop their language for innovation. So these three terms, we talked about them, why, why we focused on those three, but you really do need to consider all of the terms that you find yourself using to talk about innovation and, you know, the ones especially that can have some fuzzy definitions. So ideas, innovation, and invention are three, and those other ones are, you know, something like disruption or uh, transformational or incremental or sustaining, those terms as well. So what you want to do is put those ideas on the table, make sure that people sort of see that there's value in, in defining these terms, and then come up with your own set of definitions to suit your company's needs uh, and evangelize those across the organization. So my definition, again, isn't particularly relevant, but mm -hmm. in the interest of sharing, sure. um, <clears throat> I think of an idea as just the beginning of something new. Uh, it's something that should be embraced and considered and developed and nurtured and to see if it can turn into something bigger. One of the problems, so, so in the certification program I mentioned before, we actually have a great term in there uh, for this, and that is don't use the term idea because that gives people the impression that it's a fully formed, bulletproof concept, and that is typically not the case. Mm -hmm. So if you call it an idea fragment, and you ask for input about an idea fragment, that really opens the doors to building and nurturing something to make it better, as opposed to just sharing an idea where somebody can, you know, if they think one thing that's wrong with your idea, then, you know, they'll shove it aside and, and move on to the next one. So that's how I think about idea. Uh, when it comes to invention, to me, that's a new creation or discovery. I think inventions happen frequently. They often lead to patents, and there's many companies out there that have, you know, thousands of patents. Uh, but as is often the case, those inventions don't get commercialized. Uh, and I think that in order for uh, the patent to really, uh, or the invention to create value as an innovation, it needs to be commercialized. It needs to be put into the marketplace or implemented internally, if that, if, if that kind of invention, in quotes, um, applies. Mm -hmm. um, and then innovation, as I mentioned before, is when either sort of the idea or the invention um, or a combination of several idea fragments and inventions actually does result in a change that creates value. Okay, 
Got it. So we've talked about innovation excellence quite a bit. In a previous life, you were an analyst at Forrester, where you specialized in co-creation, among other things. You also co-wrote a report on measuring innovation. And one of the recommendations that came out of that report was measuring micrometrics for insight into incremental success. What would be some examples of micrometrics that a company could measure? Sure. Just to preface that answer, um, measuring innovation is is really important, but it's also very challenging, and and there's a a lot of discussion about how best to do that. I think it's important when you're measuring innovation, you have to really define the business objectives involved, and there's kind of two areas. There's there's the macro objective, which might be uh, you know things that the C-suite cares about, like revenue and um, you know, how much revenue has produced from new products or services over the past X number of years, or how did we cut costs and improve processes internally. And then there's the micro objectives, and those, I think, are all the little things that you have to do to meet the business objectives associated with innovation. So, you know, innovation itself can have many different, uh, there are many different programs, many different uh, engagement opportunities, and you really need to start breaking down what you're trying to accomplish with each of those engagements or each of those projects and measure all the little things that you can uh, and some of those things. So if you're trying to, if one of your uh, objective, objectives is to, you know, get more ideas or sourcing, you know, concepts from your customers uh, in a more co-creative approach, well, you might be looking at the, the types of people that you engaged and the number of people that you engaged, how active they were in that process, whether the, the crowd or the group that you were working with was you know, actively commenting, participating to improve an idea, fragment into an idea or into a concept. On the other hand, if you're working with more of an internal focus, measuring your engagement of your employees. So if you're trying to get the marketing department overall to, to get more involved in a certain innovation project that's associated with marketing, well, you know how many people there are there. So how many people were you able to get involved in that process? Not just in, you know, did they share an idea, because you wouldn't expect every single person to do that. But if an idea fragment is out there, were people willing to spend time building on that and you know participate in that process at some point along the way? So you, there's lots of little things you can measure uh, along that path, and then you need to be able to you know look back at those programs. So if you did that particular marketing initiative, you know in year one and year two you were doing something similar with the same group, you'd be able to compare. Well, how do we do? What what changed from year one to year two? Did our did our metrics improve in these various categories? Did we, did we improve on our business objectives of getting more people involved? And if so, how? And what did we do to change that? So there's, there's a zillion things that you can measure. It's all very dependent on what you're, what you're trying to accomplish. But those are the kind of micro metrics that will help you understand you know, what, what things worked, what things didn't work, what did you spend time on that didn't really have a positive outcome or you know, move the needle, and then you'll know not to do that next time. It's not necessary. Okay, so let me ask you, Doug, about the GE Ideas Lab site. You recently wrote a post for their site that looks at the future of work and cites a study that was recently completed by GE called the Global Innovation Barometer 2014. It provides some insights on disruption, collaboration, and the future of work. 
What from that study stuck out to you as being notable about the future of work? It was a pretty interesting study. It covers a lot of ground, and um, it's a great a great study. I think uh, I would encourage everybody to take a look at that. Um, one thing that kind of caught my eye, though, was that the report noted a pretty dramatic shift from last year to this year in terms of companies' acceptance of risk associated with collaboration. And I think uh, if I had to say, you know, what, what are the buzzwords for the, you know, second half of 2014 and moving into 2015, collaboration would definitely be one of those. Um, but the, the GE report from 2013 um, examined the lack of IP protection and found it to be a major concern for many companies, such that only 38% of those companies wanted to increase collaboration uh, at that time. Now, in the 2014 report, that number jumped up to 77%. So 38% in 2013 interested in, in, in uh, advancing collaboration up to 77%. To me, that's just a gigantic change. This mind shift is huge. And I'm a big believer in the idea of open innovation, and I've always believed that companies have far more to gain by adopting sort of an open and collaborative environment than they stand to lose by retaining that so-called not invented here NIH mentality. Mm -hmm. So to me, this report really kind of helps us see that the shift toward that more collaborative mindset has taken hold. Um, that's not to say that there isn't a big difference in saying that you want to do something and then actually doing it. I think adopting a collaborative environment it's going to be hard for many big enterprises. It's a, it's a tough change to initiate. There are a lot of moving parts. So it's a challenge. But what, what I found uh, you know, particularly compelling here in this report is that companies sort of recognize the need for it, and it sounds like they're willing to embrace that challenge. Okay. And one, one stat I want to ask you about from that study that I thought was really interesting and, and kind of had to do with innovation and geography so it said that roughly half of the executives, including top-ranked innovators in the U.S. and Japan, prefer the agile approach of sprinting to market and then iterating post-launch. Then another half of the world, including the most innovative companies in Germany and China, prefer to perfect a product before introducing it to the marketplace. So I know we're here in the States, but which side of that debate would you come down on? Well, I think it really depends on the market that you're in and the product that you're that you're building. Right. Um, that's okay, so how you I don't want to launch a, a, a an automobile to the market, for example, and then come back and fix it. You're taking all my good examples. Well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Established product markets. I think they require new products that work. Period. You right. know, consumers they want to if they buy a new car, a TV, a laptop, a smartphone, they buy the new one. They expect it to work and that they expect it to be something better than the last one they've, they've owned. The agile approach, I think, works well with new or unknown products or services, and largely because customer expectations can be lower. So getting those new products out to market quicker can really create a great opportunity for the company, and the experience that they have with the customer can be good enough to deliver value or convenience to the customer. They can recognize that this is something interesting and new, and maybe it doesn't work perfectly, but it's good enough, and it helps me in some material way. And so they're okay with it not being perfect. I also think it's pretty clear you know, the ability to uh, push improvements seamlessly to the customer makes you know, a, a huge difference too. 
for a car, for example, you can't change the aerodynamics of that car after the customer has already made that purchase. But you can upgrade the internal navigation system or the onboard computer software to improve either something that's faulty or something that just didn't have a very good customer fit uh, to it. Okay, got it. That makes perfect sense. So uh, we're getting a little low on time, Doug. I know we've strayed a little bit from just talking about the importance of communication and the language of innovation. But getting back to that topic, any final parting words of wisdom that you'd like to share for listeners on the importance of communication to drive successful innovation efforts? Absolutely. I think it's just to reiterate one more time how important it is to create this common language of innovation. It sounds rather basic, but the fact is that most companies aren't doing it, and it's causing real problems. And those real problems translate into financial impacts. So it's worth the time. It's worth the effort. It's worth saving your employees from frustration as well as saving your company uh, money. And I think everybody's going to benefit from that. The the other thing I wanted to share, I didn't uh, uh, mention it earlier, is that the research report you referenced is available through Innovation Excellence Research. It's a subscription-based model, relatively cheap, we think, in the market. We're trying to be a little disruptive, and if you want to know what disruptive means in this context, you can contact me later. But it's just a $300 per subscriber subscription. So uh, we've got some great research that we've got on the docket for the fall of 2014 and would encourage all of the listeners to, to check it out. Okay, great. So, uh, Doug Williams, if you'd like to contact him, his email is doug at innovationexcellence.com. Innovation Excellence is a fantastic resource for anyone who is interested in reading more on innovation. Uh, A number of our podcast guests have been closely associated with Innovation Excellence. Rowan Gibson, who was on earlier, uh, is one of the co-founders. Heis Van Woofen, I I believe, blogs there regularly. We also have Dr. Kevin McFarthing coming on for a future episode. Uh, So thanks so much for all that you do, Doug. Thanks so much for everything that Innovation Excellence does. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Will. Of course, our pleasure. Thanks once again to Doug Williams of Innovation Excellence for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into next week's episode when we're excited to have Dr. Jackie Freiberg on the podcast to talk about why innovation is everyone's job, how leaders can create a culture where everyone owns innovation, why you should empower all employees to become part of the innovation process and pitfalls and roadblocks to avoid when doing so. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next week.